Hi, I'm Gary Zacharias, and you're listening to The Apologist Bookshelf. You know, once in a while I do an older book, but I do it with uh, two reasons in mind. One is I think it's got enough useful information that I don't worry about the date. And secondly, I think I pick these books because I like the authors, and I think uh, we need to be aware of what they've been saying. I guess I have a third reason, too, and that is if it's an older book, chances are you'll be able to find it someplace really cheap. So that's that's another good feature. All right, so the one I wanted to look at today that I haven't talked about before is a classic by Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, and Nancy Piercy. And of course, Chuck passed away a few years back, but uh, Nancy Piercy is still writing some excellent material. So this book was the two of them collaborating in something called How Now Shall We Live? So he called it his legacy book. And uh, he said it's the most important work of his career. And I think that's probably true. So it covers things like how to expose the false views and values of modern culture, how to live a more fulfilling and satisfying life, how to be effective in, va- in evangelism, because we need to think and understand how non-believers uh, rationalize things, and how to contend for the faith in a winsome way. Boy, that's important, isn't it? We don't want to be obnoxious about it. And then the big goal, of course, is to build a society that would reflect biblical principles. So I like this book. It equips people to understand these issues that are going around today and how to help your kids understand these things as well. So what I'm going to do is just, again, like a typical podcast, is just take certain parts of the book, and I'll come back to it. And again, it's older. It came out in 1999, and it's a big book. Oh, man, but it's got so many great chapters. And I'm sure you can find it someplace uh, reasonably priced. I'm going to start kind of in the middle of a chapter here, and it's titled, uh, the middle of the chapter anyway, is titled, Is Nature Our Creator? And uh, he said, we're hearing today that life is all there is, and nature is all we need to explain everything that exists. That's the philosophy of naturalism. So it begins with a, an assumption that the forces of nature alone could explain everything that exists. Of course, that's not what the Bible says. But naturalists say, in the beginning, then they don't say the word God, but they say in the beginning were the particles and all sorts of blind, purposeless, natural laws. And he, he I say he, it's uh, Chuck Colson, I guess, did a majority of the book, but he and Nancy Piercy said that naturalistic scientists try to give the idea that they're pretty fair-minded and objective and that it's only religious people who have a bias and they said, of course, that's false. Naturalism is a philosophy. It's a worldview. It's just a personal belief system like any religion has. And in fact, naturalism begins with ideas that can't be tested empirically. You know, For example, they take Carl Sagan's popular science program called Cosmos. And how did Sagan introduce that? He said, nature is all that is or ever was or ever will be. And that's just a statement. That's not a proven fact. Isn't that amazing? It's an assumption. It's not a scientific statement. You can't test that. It's philosophy. And then they point out that it's actually Sagan who did popularize this naturalistic worldview because he was on TV. I remember seeing him on TV. Uh, he had that great smile, and he was so eloquent when he'd talk about things. It, was, it influenced a lot of people that watched that program, Cosmos. If you're aware of it, too, Cosmos was redone with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and oh my goodness, it has only moved further away from any Christian possibility at all. It's pretty blatantly anti-Christian. 
Anyway, so let's move along here. So Sagan said, a universe that is infinitely old requires no creator. So he basically worshipped, right? That was his God. The cosmos was his God. And uh, how, do we, how do we save? Uh, how do we get saved? Well, the threats that are on us now to, for our survival, things like pollution and war and food shortages, that doesn't have to do with moral failings, according to Sagan. It's just technological incompetence. Now, he thinks humanity is kind of in our evolutionary childhood and um, somewhere we're going to get more advanced civilizations, maybe from space, but maybe from us, and to help us move along. Well, the authors here point out everybody worships some kind of God, and the Bible preaches against idolatry, not atheism. Naturalism, they say, can look like science, but it's a religion. That pretends to marshal facts and figures, but it's a religion. And so what we have to do as Christians is to separate real science from philosophy. One more time, Sagan says the, the cosmos is all there is, was, or ever will be. That's not science. That's philosophy. So we have to separate science from philosophy. Take evolution, they say, as an example. It confuses the two. It says often you'll get something that they call science, but it's a philosophy. Um, he says, well, why would we let secularists make the definition? He said, let's be clear. We should distinguish between science and philosophy, and then let's answer science with science and answer philosophy with philosophy. That's so simple, but it makes sense, doesn't it? If somebody makes a scientific claim, okay, then we look at that from a scientific perspective. If somebody makes a philosophical claim, then we tackle it with philosophy. So I think that's really good. They said that, you know, our job as Christians, we've got to convince people that the debate is not the Bible versus science. Guess who wins that one? Sure, science does. It's not the Bible against science. The debate is about pursuing an unbiased examination of the facts and then following those facts wherever they may lead. That's the idea. Have an unbiased examination of facts and then follow those facts. So he's uh, both of them say that the real battle, and I've heard Chuck talk about this more than once, about the, the real battle. What is it? It's worldview against worldview. It's religion against religion. On one side, you have the naturalistic worldview. It says the universe is a product of just blind, purposeless forces. But on the other side stands the Christian worldview. It says we were created by a transcendent God, a God who loves us, a God who has purpose for us. And said we always start as a Christian worldview begins with the creation. So Colson's book and uh, Piercy's book here called How Now Shall We Live deal with huge worldview questions. So this chapter starts with the first worldview question, which says, where did everything come from? So that's it. So he said, they said that, uh, then I'm moving to a new chapter now because it's going to explore this issue of let's start at the very beginning, it says. So it says most people for ancient times uh, believed that the universe was eternal. And it's been there forever. But they said it's amazing now. In the early 20th century, some evidences were beginning to point in a curious way. The general relativity theory suggested the universe was expanding. They found stars exhibiting a red shift, which implies they're all flying away from us. And finally, that the two laws of thermodynamics makes it imperative to believe that there was a beginning. What are we talking about, that second law of thermodynamics? It's the law of decay. It says the universe is now like a clock. It's winding down. It's moving toward final darkness and decay. 
And if it's running down, well, there must have been a time when it was wound up. So the first law of thermodynamics says that matter can't just pop into existence or create itself. So put those things together. If the universe had a beginning, and with the Big Bang Theory and other ideas, then something external to the universe had to cause it to come into existence. Now that something, of course we would say someone, is transcendent to the natural world. It's beyond this natural world. I mean, think about it. All matter, space, time, and energy came into being, which means those things could not have been there to create matter, space, time, and, and uh, energy. So the idea of creation is not just religious faith. It's a conclusion based on reading of the scientific evidence. They use a, a example from a British physicist, Paul Davies. He's not a Christian. And by the way, I love quoting from people who don't share my particular view because I figure they're being more honest when they come to the conclusion that I agree with. So here's what Paul Davies said, D-A-V-I-E-S. Look him up sometime. Interesting guy. He says the Big Bang is the one place in the universe where there is room, even for the most hard-nosed materialist, to admit God. Davies wrote a recent book called The Eerie Silence, and he's saying, you know, we've been looking and looking. By the way, this is just me talking, not these two authors, not from the book, but recent science has been looking to see if there's anybody out there signaling us, and they haven't found anything, and Davies says we're probably it, the only intelligence in the universe. Wow. So they, let's get back to the book here. They talk about the Big Bang Theory, and they said that just really knocked a hole in naturalistic philosophy. And it was kind of interesting because a large number of scientists did not want the Big Bang to be true because it means something had to get the universe going. So even a well-known physicist, Arthur Eddington, he said the idea of a beginning is philosophically, and here's the word he used, repugnant. Isn't that interesting? A scientist looked at a theory and went, ew, I don't like it. What kind of scientist does that? That's not looking at it from a scientific perspective. That's a philosophical view, isn't it? Einstein, in fact, actually fiddled with his equations. He did not want the idea of an expanding universe. And so later on, he said that was the biggest mistake he'd ever made. So anyway, how did they get around the Big Bang idea? Well, they said in their book here that there's one strategy, and that's just to call it philosophy or religion that brings that up and then just moves along. We only talk about science, they say. Well, that's kind of odd, but that's one way. Uh, other scientists try to get it around, uh, get around this thing by saying that matter is eternal. After all, uh, I don't know how that happens, but well, for example, they, they illustrate it with uh, Sagan, who seemed to suggest maybe an oscillating universe that expands, contracts, expands, contracts, and it'll go on forever. Oh, there you go, and now you got an eternal universe. But the basic law of physics says, you know, even an oscillating universe is going to use up energy in each cycle and eventually it'd run down. So that second law of thermodynamics shoots down any idea of an eternal universe. How about this? Uh, here's a third way. Just They just kind of <laughs> they just bail on the whole thing. There's a philosophy professor, Quentin Smith. He said the universe came from nothing, by nothing, for nothing. Really? Talk about giving up. Uh, but they said, you know, overall, science is starting to sound like Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. So he said, um, we shouldn't oppose science with religion. We should oppose bad science with better science. Oh, that is so good. He says, we ought to raise questions like, okay, well, there's a Big Bang, so what came before the Big Bang? What caused it? 
If the Big Bang was the origin of the universe, then its cause has to be something outside the universe. You know what Greg Kokel says? He said, you know, if there's a Big Bang, there's got to be a Big Banger. Oh, I think that's really good. All right, then they look around in, their, in the book here. They look around uh, at what's already here. And, say, and the question is, are we cosmic accidents? And they're finding out how beautiful the Earth is as far as these characteristics that make it capable of supporting life. Amazing. And they just give you some special uh, ways. They said, is it just coincidence or is there a loving creator? And they talk about the Earth's orbit being exactly right. The existence of water has to be exactly right. Um, you have to have the right physical properties in the entire universe. For example, the Big Bang. It can't just explode randomly. It has to move just exactly in a certain way. They say the structure of the atom. The neutron is just slightly more massive than a proton, which means that free neutrons can decay and turn into protons. But if things are reversed, if the proton was larger and tended to decay, so the whole universe structure would be gone. And they explain why. So I'm not going to get into that. So they said, so why is the neutron larger than the proton? Nobody knows. There's no physical cause for it. Then you got the fact that atomic particles also have electrical charges. And those charges are exactly right to balance each other out. And so there's no known physical reason or any natural explanation for that balance in the electrical charges of the proton and the electron. And they said all these coincidences just go on and on. It turns out, they said, that if you just mess with, just slightly with any of the fundamental forces of physics like gravity or electromagnetism or the strong and weak nuclear force, you'd end up with a universe where there is no life at all, not not a case of, oh, it might be different than us. No, there'd be no life at all. So their conclusion is it's beginning to look like the laws of physics are exquisitely calibrated just so for the creation of human life. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's great to know. And then they take on the idea of the multiverse. Some people say, well, okay, maybe this universe is just right for life, but what what if there are an infinite number of universes being cranked out and they all had different laws? So maybe eventually... Ours happens to be just right. Well, of course, the key question is, how do you know whether these other universes exist? The answer is you can't know it. It's just scientific imagination. Even if alternative universes did exist, they'd be impossible for us to detect. And uh, they said some scientists are pretty candid, admit that this whole idea is just trying to avoid the idea of that anthropic principle, that everything is exactly right for us. So I think that's uh, important uh, as well. Um, let me get uh, toward the end of the chapter here. It uh, said, uh, we recognize the products of design versus the products of just natural forces. Uh, when we try to explain any natural phenomenon, there are three possibilities. Think about this. Try to explain anything. Raindrops or a mountain, the way a mountain looks, or whatever. It's either chance, or it's a law, or it's design. If the natural phenomenon is irregular, if it's erratic, then you say it's just a random event. If it's regular, repeatable, and predictable, it's probably a result of natural forces, like you drop something and it falls at a certain rate, then gravity's at work. But if it's unpredictable and yet highly specified, we say it's designed. So like the faces on Mount Rushmore, they're irregular. You don't see those with erosion, yet they're specified. They fit a particular pre-selected pattern. So that points to design. So according to the anthropic principle, evidence for design is throughout the universe. It said many of these major features that we see of the physical universe are irregular. There's no natural law. 
that accounts for them, nothing that makes them have to be that way, and yet they're highly specified. They are they look pre-selected to support life. They bear the unmistakable characteristics of design. So if there's design out there, guess what? There should be a designer. Well, that's uh, just a part of the book here. It's an excellent book. It's a meaty, good material to sink your teeth into kind of book. So I highly suggest it. Again, it's called How Now Shall We Live? Colson and Piercy are the authors. Piercy spells her name, by the way, P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. Uh, anything by her is excellent as well. Well, thanks and uh, enjoy the rest of your day.